As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song. A boiling river in the Amazon. A spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. We only have 100 days left until the 2022 midterms, and we need to make every one count. We know how high the stakes are in these midterms. Abortion is on the ballot. Climate is on the ballot. Our basic freedoms and ability to make our voices heard to protect them are on the ballot. Head to votesaveamerica.com midterms to take our Count Me In pledge to volunteer the weekend of July 31st and become part of our midterm madness program to get involved in the most important elections in 2022 from the Senate to your local school board. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, 2021's congressional clusterfuck barrels to a close as the House reveals new details about the right-wing plot to destroy democracy, while the Senate tries to save it with a last-minute attempt to pass voting rights legislation. Then, former Biden White House COVID advisor Andy Slavitt joins to talk about how we can prepare for what the Biden administration believes will be a large wave of Omicron infections. And Dan and I discuss the media's role in defending democracy. But first, if you're excited for the release of Spider-Man No Way Home, then you have to check out Crooked's podcast X-Ray Vision. Host Jason Concepcion and Marvel superfan Rosie Knight are recapping all the previous Spider-Man films, breaking down all the returning villains, and sharing their wildest theories about the future of the MCU multiverse. New episodes of X-Ray Vision drop every Friday wherever you get your podcast, And you can now binge the entire second season of Unholier Than Thou, where host Philip Picardi explores the wisdom of everyday people falling down and getting back up again. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, We will have a few special episodes for you guys over the break, but this is our last regular pod of 2021. So we thought we'd take stock of what's happening right now in Washington, the beating heart of our thriving democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's start with the House. Over in the House, the January 6th committee ended the year by not only voting to hold Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress, They have released some of the text messages that he turned over to the committee, including this one, which was sent to Meadows by an unnamed Republican member of Congress before the polls closed on the night of the 2020 election. Here's what it said, quote, here's an aggressive strategy. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and other Republican controlled state houses declare this is BS and just send their own electors to vote? and have it go to the Supreme Court. Dan, who do you think that was, and what the fuck? (laughs) Here's the sad thing. It could be, honestly, almost anyone. 
Anyone not <laughs> named Adam Kinziger, Liz Cheney, maybe a Romney, maybe a Murkowski. Everyone else is a viable suspect for that text. And I think in the answer to your question of what the fuck is what the fuck? Like, I mean, this is I mean, this is ultimately the like the underplayed or undertold story about all of this is just a general Republican disdain for the idea that voters should get to pick their politicians. Right. This is what happens when you're a minority party in a country with a theoretically majoritarian system is you want to do everything you can to prevent the majority from having their will to voters. So this one. It is, I would say, an accurate description to call it an aggressive strategy. <laughs> Let's just stop counting the votes while we're ahead. Well, I mean, you know, we talk all the time about the big lie. This is like, put the big lie aside. Put the allegations, the false allegations of voter fraud that no one's been able to find aside. This proves, at least for this member of Congress, this Republican member of Congress, that all of the voter fraud allegations were completely bullshit because before there were any voter fraud allegations, before any of this, this person was just like, you know what? Let's just fucking overturn the election. You people don't get to pick who represents you. Republican politicians get to pick who represent you. That is their platform. <laughs> that is the belief, at least of this one Republican member of Congress, that, that we should just overturn the votes of Republican Democrats, independents, whoever, because the people who should get to decide who are in power in this country are Republican politicians and not the American people. That's it. There are only two kinds of elections. The ones Republicans win and illegitimate elections in their mind. That's how they think about it. So let me ask you this. Uh, why do you think President Biden and Democrats in Congress aren't making a big deal about this? I, I, I did some searching before uh, the pod. I did not see many statements. I did not even see. I saw a few tweets here and there. Uh, from the very online members of Congress. Um, but that's about it. I don't know. I mean, it's very – I was trying to think about this from the perspective of being in the White House. And you sort of think about like what's on the agenda for Joe Biden and his team every day. And let's just put aside just the fact that there's the normal stuff that presidents are required to talk about. Like, oh, the so-and-so of Finland is coming today or – the NSC has somehow tricked us into announcing our new Asia strategy this week. And we got to talk about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, like all that other stuff that it has importance in the world, I guess. There's, but, thing, there's things you say on this podcast that I'm just like, I can't wait till Ben hears this, <laughs> Rhodes hears this, and, and then texts us. Well, it's good because no one <laughs> listens to this podcast sooner after it comes out than Ben. <laughs> like that's sometimes how I know the podcast has come out is Ben has texted me something we have said in it. Um, <laughs> It's fun. We have fun with our world, Opal. <laughs> That's right. But then you just think about like the other things that are on their sort of communications department whiteboard, which is you pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That is a huge accomplishment. What is one of the lessons of previous presidencies is go sell your bill. So there, you know, you got the president talking about it. you got Pete Buttigieg and Secretary Granholm driving in a car together and live stream. Whatever, <laughs> like you're just talking about that. And it's like, oh, also. There's a we're in the middle of a second Delta surge and Omicron is coming. So we better use what bully pop. We have to tell people to get the get boosters and vaccinated. So we got to do that. Yeah. And we got to make the case for the pieces of legislation we haven't passed yet. And why, also, why aren't you talking about democracy? And it's very it's like it's very hard. Now, the question will be when sort of the calendar switches and we get into next year and we start making campaigning for the midterms. What is the core message? What are you going to pick? Is it? Democrats deliver? Is it Republicans are trying to steal elections? Is it Republicans are obstructed? Like, we're going to have to pick that story and stick to it. But there is, I just, 
I am sympathetic to the view of you should talk more about this. Yes, you probably should. But then what are the things you're going to talk about less? Right. Well, you know, Joe Biden was asked about Meadows and the contempt charge as he was going to the helicopter to Marion One. And he said, um, you know, I think this this sounds warranted. The the committee voting for the contempt charge. I haven't looked at the text, which I guess you understand. Look, I under I very much understand White House has a lot on its plate. It's got to focus on, um, you know, coming Omicron wave, all the legislation it's trying to get passed. So I, I totally get that. Um, I do think that the anti-democratic movement in this country, right, is sort of the biggest overall looming threat that we face, um, medium term and long term, uh, particularly when we get around the midterms. And I think that it's fine if you don't, you know, pop off right as the text comes out, uh, right when everyone wants you to. Um, But, you know, they're going to make a push for voting rights, which we'll talk about. And in the new year, if the Biden administration and the president himself are leaning into voting rights legislation, which will hopefully also include some election subversion provisions, um, I would talk about this. I would talk about this. And I think that like if we want and we're going to get to this later, but if also if we want the media to cover it more then Democrats sort of have to talk about it. You know, you have to make a case at some point. You have to do a bunch of different things at once. I mean, when you think about this moment in history in which we're living and like you flash forward a couple years and then you think like all of this stuff was happening why, why why weren't people making talking more about this? Like, I think you can really like there is something yeah. very very dangerous happening, and there is a sense maybe it's real, maybe it's intentional, maybe it's but the sense that a lot of Washington Democrats, like people in the Senate, some in the House, maybe some in the White House, are missing this threat. I don't know if they are really missing it, but I think if you were just look at their public statements, you would get the sense that they think think that the Republican Party is more normal and less dangerous than we think it is. And that is a that is a position you could really come to regret. Yeah, look, and I'm also very sympathetic. I'm sure if you were sitting here in the White House hearing this, you'd be like, well, you think that Joe Biden just talking about it is going to do what? Is that going to sweep the Republicans out of power immediately? No. Is that going to change their behavior? No. Like what? I do think, though, that like I was looking for stories about that text. Uh, I saw it because Jake Tapper tweeted it um, and a bunch of other people were tweeting it. But when you looked for actual stories uh, in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Politico, uh, CNN, I found like a small paragraph in a CNN update story. (laughs) Didn't find a lot of other stories about that very alarming text. And I think, we again, we'll talk about the media's role here, but I think it has to start with you know, if Democrats, if elected Democrats don't talk about it, then it's not going to get covered. And I do think it's at least important for most of the country to know that this is happening. And then if people don't want to make up, don't want to vote based on that knowledge, then that's all we can do. But they should at least have the knowledge. Um, the other bombshell from Meadows's text came from one uh, six committee co-chair and, and longtime resistance hero Liz Cheney, um, who read aloud messages from Fox News hosts and even Don Jr., Uh, that begged Meadows to get Trump to call off the violent mob that was attacking the Capitol. Here's a clip. Indeed, according to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, 
The president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. How about those fucking heroes, Dan? Trying to, trying to stop the mob by, by texting Mark Meadows and begging him to, uh, to get Donald Trump to call it off. How about that? Well, if only those Fox hosts had access to the airwaves and maybe sort of some sort of media outlet that would be very influential with the sorts of people who were storming the Capitol that day. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Dan. Um, thanks to the video team at the Washington Post, um, we have audio of what these Fox hosts and, uh, and Don Jr., the Trump family's Connor Roy, um, were actually saying in public at that time. The Capitol was under siege by people who can only be described as antithetical to the MAGA movement. Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. I do not know Trump supporters that have ever demonstrated violence that I know of in a big situation. They knew there were hundreds of thousands of people that came to town. We also knew that there's always bad actors that will infiltrate large crowds. I don't care if they're radical left, radical right, I don't know who they are, they're not people I would support. If you were to take his speech and compare it to literally any stump speech, you would see absolutely no deviation. <laughs> what uh, What's the significance of this uh, revelation, if you want to call it that, about uh, Fox News hosts and Don Jr.? And, and what do we do with this information? <laughs> Laugh, cry, I don't know. Both. <laughs> it's really the story of 2021 in so many ways. Um, <laughs> the... I think this is ultimately more important for the historical record than it is current politics. Right? Like we are everyone with eyes and ears who is willing to look and listen knows what happened. They know these Fox hosts are full of shit. The problem, like, I mean, it is significant that Fox, and I think the most significant part from any of the taxes, Laura Ingram saying this hurts all of us which is sort of a admission that, oh, look what we have unleashed here with our lies and our disinformation and our search for ratings and our firing people up over a bunch of election bullshit. Like this could hurt us, right? Like not, not this could hurt the Capitol Police. This could hurt democracy. This could hurt the people who were, you know, Mike Pence or anyone else. This could hurt us. Like that's why they care. And it is notable, I guess, that they texted the president's chief of staff, not the local, the head of the local Antifa, right? So it's pretty clear they know who was responsible. But like, it's good that we have a historical record that even Trump's son, who apparently uh, doesn't have access to his father's cell phone, um, had to text the chief of staff. But Which, the pro- I know I realize that's a very small thing in the grand scheme of things, but that's pretty fucked up. <laughs> 
he couldn't he couldn't text his dad. He had to text his dad's chief of staff. <laughs> Says it, a lot. It, ex- it explains a lot. Ben Ivanka had a direct line to dad. <laughs> the one the one he loves. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean. The thing here, it, like, yes, this reveals a lot. And in the historical record of what happened on this day, we now even have people who have lied about it being caught in those lies. But for the whatever it is, 60 or 70 percent of Republicans who believe the election was stolen, the the significant plurality of Republicans who believe that Antifa or someone else was involved in this and it wasn't Trump supporters. This information is not going to change that, right? Like there's not a – the problem is not an absence of facts here, Right. There was a rally organized by Trump supporters. Trump tweeted and told people to go to the rally. He then went to the rally. He, at that rally, he said the election was stolen. People should do something about it. People left that rally, waving Trump flags and wearing MAGA hats, marched to the Capitol, scaled the walls, chanted around there, Trump won, did horrible things, violently assaulted everyone in their way. Like, not, there's no, we don't, it's on video. We don't, we don't, there's no like smoking gun that's going to get a bunch of people to do it. We have to recognize I think as we think about the politics of this, that there's a lot of motivated reasoning here. We're not just like one Laura Ingram text away from the bulk of the Republican Party being like, oh, Trump is bad or insurrection is bad or one six really happened. And I think that that like that's a really sad statement about American politics and our information ecosystem and all of that. But like that is, I think, the reality of what is here. Like it's great for the historical record. It makes these guys look stupid uh, and force them to sort of backtrack on air. But it's not the underlying dynamics here are not going to change based on that. I also think it highlights something else that we've talked about before, which is that no one has less respect for Republican voters than Republican politicians, and no one has less respect for Fox viewers than Fox news hosts, and. Because what they do in private is completely different than what they do in public. In private, they all get vaccinated. All the Republican politicians, the Fox News hosts, they make sure they're vaccinated. They make sure they're safe. And then they just spout anti-vax bullshit on the air all the time. With this, they tell people, oh, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was fake. It was Antifa, even as they're privately texting Meadows saying, please call these people off. But they incite people to go to this, to, to, to the rally to in the first place and put them in harm's way, right? Like who, who is, who is mostly dying of COVID right now? Unvaccinated Trump supporters who, who gets hurt when they decide not to expand Medicaid, uh, un, uninsured Trump supporters. They do this all the fucking time. They have, they do not care about their own voters or their own viewers. And I do think that that's something worth mentioning <laughs> uh, and, and something that Democrats should think about, too, because, you know, Democrats get attacked. And you know, ever since uh, ever since Hillary Clinton made that gaffe about, you know, calling them deplorables, like, you know, who thinks they're deplorable? Fucking Fox News hosts and Republican politicians. They think they're all fucking idiots and they treat them like that. That's and, and people should know that. And the question is, how do you make that case? I don't I don't know the right answer to that, but that like that is you're exactly right, is that whether it's Donald Trump, the Republican Party, Fox, views their voters as a means to an end. Nothing more. What happens to them does not fucking matter as long as they put Doesn't them back matter. in power, let them continue to give tax cuts to the rich, to help the cor- their friends in the corporations, to make sure that Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and the rest of them stay fucking rich. They could give two shits about the rest of you. Yeah, they want to be rich and they want to be in power. And the rest of you can fuck yourselves. Yeah. That's it. That's that's the Republican Party. Um, all right. So that's what's going on in the House. 
Let's talk about the Senate, where um, uh, what, 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 what is going on in the Senate, John? <laughs> Nothing. You know what? I wrote I wrote this up last night. I don't fucking know. Okay, here's what's going on. Uh, the Build Back Better negotiations have completely blown up because Joe Manchin woke up one day and decided, uh, you know, I want I want I don't want it to be a dime over one point seven five trillion dollars, but every program that you put in the bill, I'm going to pretend that it has to be extended for 10 years, and I'm going to count that cost of extending the program for 10 years towards the price of the bill. That's what he has decided. So that whole fake CBO score that we talked about earlier in the week um, that Joe Manchin asked Lindsey Graham to ask the CBO to calculate, he's taking it seriously. He's taking it seriously. And now the problem is um, we have a $1.75 trillion bill with a whole bunch of programs that if they're extended to 10 years, which apparently they are in Joe Manchin's mind, will be way over $1.75 trillion. So now the question is, what programs can you put in a $1.75 trillion bill that are actually authorized for a full 10 years? And just to give everyone an example, um, the child tax credit, which got a lot of attention because Manchin said, there was some reporting that Manchin said that the Democrats should cut the child tax credit completely from the bill costs 1.6 trillion dollars if it is extended over 10 years so if you put the 1.6 trillion dollar child tax credit in the bill that mansion says can't be over 1.75 trillion you don't have much more room for anything in the bill the one provision in the bill that originally was authorized for a full 10 years even before mansion's problem were the climate tax credits and grants and all that they cost about a half a trillion dollars over 10 years so you start doing the math and you realize why this whole thing has started to fall apart because now we need to figure out. So, you know, we can get the climate stuff in there for 0.5 for half a trillion dollars. That still gives you now $1.25 trillion left to, you know, find programs that you can, you can include that still won't break the bank after 10 years. And, you know, I have to say like, maybe it's just that Joe Manchin wakes up every morning and has a completely different outlook on the legislation maybe he's just dumber than we even thought maybe i don't i don't know i'm done figuring out joe manchin's motivations right maybe he's dumb maybe he's corrupt maybe he's trying to do his best who the fuck cares at this point he's screwing everything up that's all we need to know um but like you know did chuck schumer not know this uh dick durbin he's number two in the Demo in the democratic leadership he woke up this morning and was like this is outrageous i can't believe this is happening this is not anything that we expected like how is everyone continually surprised by this? What is going on? I mean, not a clue. I, my maybe we are stupid, but the impression <laughs> everyone left when the House passed the one point seven five trillion dollar version of the bill, whatever that was a month and a half ago, the impression we all had was we agreed on the top line. We agreed on the everyone, right? That what they were going to pass was something that was in the neighborhood of what Manchin and Senator okay for, because we took a bunch of stuff that they didn't like out. Clean energy standard, the yep. crazy idea to ask the wealthy to pay a higher tax rate or corporations to pay a tax rate that existed just two years ago. We took all that out to make those people happy. And then, yes, we knew that they were not going to just pass what the House passed, but they would make some changes and Manchin would obviously do his normal annoying shit and we would he'd meet unnecessarily means test some things because if you could just be cruel to some people in need like that would be, be get him centrist points at the no labels conference or something and then they would pay then the house would pass it and we'd be done. 
But what his objection now is so fun. It, it is at the fundamental structure of the bill and not just the one the House passed, the bill we've been talking about for a year now. It's like, I do yeah. not. Is It is either like you're right. Is no one talking to him? Is he changing his mind? But the problem with all of it, whatever the answer to that is, the problem is it is giving everyone unfair, inaccurate expectations of what can happen. And and I will say, as as a piece of evidence on Joe Manchin's side, um, he has been talking about the what he calls the gimmicks in this bill since before it passed the House. So I don't know if if other Democrats in the Senate just didn't take those complaints seriously or they weren't listening to them. But like Joe Manchin has been complaining about this 10 year window bullshit for a long time now. But I don't know, like, is this going to be another thing where we find out that him and fucking Chuck Schumer signed a piece of paper three months ago where where Schumer knew this was happening? Like what? I, I just it is. It's mind boggling. And it is like none of it makes any sense. And there's this other story in the Washington Post and he's like negotiating on these very fine details of some of the climate provisions. Well, right. Well, that's I mean, I I was going to say, like, the, the, if there's if you want to find some good news in all of this, like Joe Manchin is not just saying like he, he doesn't seem like he's just saying this to tank the whole bill because he's in the while this is going on. He's like in these detailed negotiations about like the electric vehicle tax credit and exactly how it's structured. And then he said to reporters yesterday, like, hey, don't tell me I don't like the child tax credit. If you want to authorize the child tax credit for 10 years for $1.6 trillion and you want that to be your bill, I'm committed. Let's do it. But then you can't have anything else. So it's he's being completely unreasonable and an asshole here. But it does sound like he would would approve a bill that costs $1.75 trillion as long as every program is authorized for the full 10 years. It's just, and it's, you don't ever know like what is Manchin and what is his staff. Like they're probably like, well, that's the other, that's the other. Right. He's the chair of the energy committee. He's got a lot of energy staffers and I'm sure they're like in negotiations with the white house people and the, uh, in Schumer's office about these specific provisions and Manchin just bobbing along, you know, listening to Lindsey Graham, (laughs) just, you know, seeing what he hears on CNBC next and like saying some dumb shit. So you just never, like, there are a lot of members who, are relatively disconnected from the details and he feels yeah. he feels like one of them. But none of this is good, I would say that. <laughs> no, it's not good. Well, so there it looks like they are going to uh quote shelve the build back better bill uh until the next year. There are some sources in Schumer's office that told NBC till March apparently. Um now, this is a problem, A, because everyone wanted to build back better bill before Christmas, but also in the more immediate sense the child tax credit does the authorization for that runs out at the end of the year. So I don't know that they can authorize that for just one more year since that's against what Joe Manchin wants to do. And he wants to say, authorize it for 10 years or nothing. Um, so that's a problem. But I guess as this all this shit was going down, um, a bunch of Senate Democrats were like, hey, let's try voting rights instead. <laughs> so there was this whole movement to try to pass voting rights legislation. And this was this this change in strategy, this, I would say, abrupt change in strategy was previewed uh, in a very passionate speech from Senator Raphael Warnock this week on the Senate floor. Let's take a listen. Did we rise to the moment or did we hide behind procedural rules? I believe that we Democrats can figure out how to get this done, even if that requires a change in the rules. 
which we established just last week that we can do when the issue is important enough. Well, the people of Georgia and across the country are saying that voting rights are important enough. I think the voting rights are important enough. Amen. So, uh, again, just like everything else in 2021, you hear that clip and you're like, good for good for Reverend Warnock. Yeah, we're going to get something done. And then um, Politico drops a story uh, late Wednesday night about Kirsten Cinema and what she thinks about changing the rules for for voting rights. And we've done a lot of Manchinese translation, so we should uh, now try some cinema translation. Um, this is her spokesman uh, to Politico saying cinema quote, continues to support the Senate's 60-vote threshold and doesn't want to, quote, eliminate or weaken the filibuster to pass voting rights, but that, quote, if there are proposals to make the Senate work better for everyday Americans without risking repeated radical reversals in federal policy, Senator Cinema is eager to hear such ideas. What do you make of that? Those words are in the English language. They are actual words. <laughs> But they mean nothing. Combined, strung together in that order, they mean nothing. I mean, I mean I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out what's actually going on here because it's got to be something between Mansion and Cinema telling every Senate Democrat, "No fucking way are we ever going to change any rules to help pass voting rights." Because if that was the case, then no one would be talking about this. So it's something between that and, "Hey, we've got a solution to change the Senate rules that doesn't." eliminate or weaken the filibuster, but can still help us pass voting rights, which they clearly don't have yet, because after this whole trial balloon was floated, Chuck Schumer this morning on Thursday were like, was like, we're going to still try to get voting rights done in time for the 2022 election. I think he said we're going to get it done. I don't know. So like what? I'm just, uh, I would love, some, at some point next year early, we should have some Senate rules people on to tell us like, where, what is the, what is the rule change? Here's the question. What is the rule change where Republican? So Manchin and Cinema are basically saying we won't agree to any Senate rule change that Republicans don't also agree to. But then why would Republicans agree to a Senate rule change that would allow for the passage of voting rights legislation? They're not. They won't. Like, so then what are we doing? We, people who care about democracy, are talking about voting rights, election subversion, gerrymandering. They are talking about making it easier to pass bipartisan legislation. Like the yeah. part of this rules discussion comes from the fact that they were unable to pass or it was very challenging to pass a bipartisan national defense authorization bill. And the fact that Joe Biden can't get a single fucking ambassador passed because Ted Cruz has holds on all of them. I don't even know how that works in a world in which yeah. there isn't a filibuster. There is like there are two conversations. I mean, there's one is. How do we make our lives of doing the random things that are important but not significant easier? Like, how do you make the building work better? And then there is what we care about, which is like, how do you make democracy work better? And those are two very separate conversations. Kirsten Cinema will be part of the former, but not the latter. Because her statement is like, she's clearly open to some rule changes. She did vote for a rule change that allows you to skip the filibuster one time to prevent a global financial collapse. So, Kudos to you, the senator yeah, from Arizona. Um, but her statement also makes it very clear. Her deeply bad faith, dishonest, illogical statement about reversals of policy and voting rights 
makes it pretty clear that she'll support minor changes, but something that requires that would allow voting rights to happen is not on the table with her. And we should come to terms with that right now. Yeah, the Politico story did say that they're all talking about um, potential rule changes like bringing back the talking filibuster or saying that you need 41 Republican senators in this case on the floor to carry out a filibuster against voting rights. And so in that scenario, you'd have to have 41 fucking old people standing on the Senate floor the whole time to stop voting rights. And maybe they would be able to, but then maybe the Democrats could outlast them. I don't know. So like what, maybe those, maybe Senator Manchin would, maybe they would support those. <laughs> like the 41 vote thing seems so stupid to me. Like, of course, in a world in which they had, it was say 58, 42 Senate, maybe you, someone would get sick one day and you can sneak through some legislation, but you think there, there's going to be a world where Mitch McConnell is going to just slip up and oh, there are only going to be 40 senators and we're going to, I don't know, expand Social Security that day? Like, it just doesn't seem like a real thing to me. I don't either. It would at least, uh, you know, it would, it would highlight, just from a political standpoint, whether it would work or not, it would highlight, it would get a lot of media coverage to have this standoff on the Senate floor where you have 41 Republican senators who won't leave the Senate floor to block voting rights. And you have every Democrat, including Manchin and Sinema, on board trying to pass this piece of legislation. It would at least do that. Maybe that's what they're thinking, that they just want to get caught trying here. Least, the I mean, thing I, could think of. I guess at bare minimum, if you you might as well make it really physically and emotionally annoying for the other side to yeah, grind down, democracy to a halt. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I could think of. All right. So uh, now we get all that out of the way. We get build back better, shelve till March till someone can figure out, someone can hot out a calculator and figure out what programs to put in it to appease Joe Manchin. We got voting rights basically exactly where we were before this trial balloon was floated. A um, lot of disappointed Democrats out there. I would say that the hosts of this program are among them. But um, what do you think is a fair and accurate narrative about Biden's first year? Thinking about you know, now that we've had one year, uh, one year of the Biden administration, uh, obviously there's a lot of criticism, a lot of pieces, you know, that this was a horrible year for Joe Biden. And so George Will wrote some column that, you know, Ron Klain was tweeting that. Um, what, what do you think is a what do you think is a fair and accurate narrative in, on the upside about Joe Biden's first year? <laughs> it was just such a surprise to find out that George Will was still writing columns, like not a I clue. Say, and, and- honestly. Again, the why you you asked me to name ten Washington Post columnists. I I don't know five. I don't know if I could do Greg it. Sargent, EJ yeah, Dion, Sargent, Jennifer Rubin. <laughs> but then like George Will pops up. And Perry I'm like, Bacon. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that I didn't know that George Will was still in the rotation. Yeah, I think I think like he and Kathleen Parker like I think they still. Yeah, stuff. I, she see she's another one who knows. Uh, don't don't have to think about her for years at a time. All right, anywho, <laughs> I mean one we should just stipulate that the whole like. Let's do a report card on the first year thing as a stupid. Yeah, of course. It's stupid. And it's all, they only do it because we're heading into a quote unquote slow news period in a normal world, probably not this year. And we then reporter, political reporters need something to write. Um, but I think there are sort of two ways to look at this question. One is let's focus on what Biden did, mm-hmm. right? He came into office at a, with the most narrowly divided Congress in history where the Republican Party, the majority of whom refused to acknowledge he legitimately won the election with a government that was a husk of itself because of the massively incompetent former president, just like taking out experts, putting in Fox News green room rejects and in the middle of a pandemic where like literally the White House staff could not meet 
in the same room. They had to like do zooms down the hall from each other, like the hardest possible situation. Joe Biden comes in, passes the a hugely historic and progressive rescue plan that has child poverty and saves the economy. Like, yes, people are very frustrated about inflation and all, all these other things. But if you look at the unemployment rate, economic growth, we are in an incredibly strong place from where we possibly could have been when he came in office, a historic year of job growth. He puts in place a competent government to begin uh, managing this pandemic, ensuring that every person who wants to get vaccinated can get vaccinated. Like in this country, if you just anywhere, anyone can go get vaccinated on any given day if they want to do it. Does all of that, then passes a historically large infrastructure bill with 19 Republicans, something that I certainly did not think was possible a year ago. I mean, maybe you were – I mean, you were always arguing about how how good in good faith the Republicans were and they would probably work with them. Uh, yeah, always, always, well, always well known for that, yes. My big and thing. Passes that. You know, which, you know, like roads and bridges are not the thing to get me out of bed in the morning, but Biden and uh, Harris announced today that they're beginning the process through this bill of removing every – replacing every lead pipe in this country. That's pretty cool. Like, that's a good thing. And I also read this morning that Biden has now nominated more – federal judges than Trump had at this point. So there's like a, a like things don't feel great in the country right now because of a bunch of things beyond Biden's control, like Omicron and Delta and inflation and supply chain stuff. And you can nitpick around all the things that, you know, easily happen. But like that stuff in and of itself would be a, if we knew nothing else, would be a hugely uh, consequential first year. Yeah. Look, I think I think the central problem that we're all grappling with here is that when we won those two senate seats in georgia we lost we our fucking we had, minds we thought we had a real majority and we never did joe manchin is a very conservative democrat who voted for chuck schumer for majority leader uh has voted for as far as i can tell just about every single judge even if they're very liberal judges um has voted for the American Rescue Plan, has voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, has voted for, I think, most of Joe Biden's nominees. Yeah. Has <laughs> killed a few, uh, but voted for most of them. And that's all he's done. And he's not, he, he doesn't want to do a whole lot more. I guess he, he though he says he's willing to spend another $1.75 trillion provided, you know, we already talked about the math there. Um, and is that infuriating that that's all that Joe Manchin will do? Yeah, of course. But... I keep coming back to like, I, what else was Joe Biden going to do? You know, I mean, I do. I, I was talking to someone, someone the other day and they're like, why didn't Joe Biden get Joe Manchin in a room and say, OK, um, 2024 is going to be a hard election for you in Virginia and West Virginia. You might not win. Tell me the job you want. You want to you want to be an ambassador. You want some great job. I'll give you that job in 2024. So you don't have to run for reelection again and just vote for all my shit. And um, I was like, yeah, I'm, that's a great idea. But like. It's such an obvious idea. We don't think that Joe Biden's tried that already. <laughs> you mean he hasn't tried like maybe, bribery? Right. <laughs> I mean, people talk about what kind of jobs you yeah, might want, yeah. not bribery. But like, yeah. look, I think I, I, I don't know. And as much as, you know, you can you can criticize them for um, expectation setting. You can criticize them for messaging. You can do all kinds of stuff if you want. But like to this day, I still don't know how you bend Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to your will uh, as a Democrat when they, well, Cinema is another story, but Manchin is in a state that may not elect another Democrat ever again. 
at least in our lifetimes. Yeah. And so with the hand they were dealt, which is a fucking shitty hand, by the way, like we used to think that our hand was pretty bad in 2009. Yeah, we had 59 senators. We had 59 senators and we had a whole bunch of pains in the asses there. Ben Nelson and Blanche Lincoln and all the rest of them. But we had 59 and he has 50 and one has been a giant and two have been giant pains in our asses. And he got two more variants (laughs) that he had to deal with. And an economy that is not back to normal yet because of those two variants. It's a tough hand. And, you know, they, they, they did a lot with what they have. And that doesn't mean that we still shouldn't be disappointed or mad or angry or whatever else. But I would remind everyone, and we've been talking on this show a lot about this, like, it's not, it's not small the threat to democracy right now that Republicans represent. And you have to ask yourself as we head into 2022 in the midterms, would I rather be disappointed by Joe Manchin or have a bunch of anti-democracy Republicans running this country? And that's not a fun choice, but that's the reality of the choice that we face for sure. I mean, it, you sort of like, you know, you and I have talked about this both on this podcast and off that we got our expectations out of whack. Like we should have fucking known better, right? For like, sure. Like I, yeah, I, 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 w- I was looking at things that Joe Manchin said too in, back in January and I was like, fuck, we're going to pass Big climate thing. We're going to pass this. We're going to pass this. It's be great. But like, you know. In the end, you can almost always figure out what's going to happen in politics by just re- doing, looking at what politicians' political incentives are. And Joe Manson's political incentive is not to pass a giant progressive thing. And it is – and then so you sort of look at this and say, well, Biden did all these great stuff, but he – you know, he let expectations get out of control. We let expectations out of control. Chuck Schumer certainly let expectations get out of control. You know, he definitely, he definitely let yes. expectations. You get know, out and of Bernie control. asked for six point five, and then we talked about three point five, and all of this. And but there is this sort of world, and you know, this is the critique a lot of. You know, you hear this from a lot of like Capitol Hill reporters, which is Joe Biden tried to pass FDR's agenda without FDR's majorities, and that is definitely true. But we're also in the situation where you don't run for office to manage expectations. To do the bare minimum. You run – this is a narrow window where Democrats can do good to help people. That's why you do it. And you take risks to do it. And Joe Biden put all of his chips in the table on this Build Back Better bill. And that that bet has not paid off yet. And it could come at political cost if it doesn't. But sometimes it's better to try to do something significant, to save the planet. Like if you're not going to take political risks to spend political capital to save the fucking planet, what are you going to spend it on? And if that bet ends up not paying off and we suffer from it, I, like that, like that's going to have some real consequences in terms of, like, as you said, this dangerous Republican Party being in charge. But I don't know that making that bet was the wrong decision. I don't think that it was. Yeah. Look, look you know, I see a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere being like, oh, I voted Democrat all my life and I'm so disappointed I don't want to vote Democrat again. And it's like, okay, the truth of the matter is you know, I saw a, a couple of tweets about, you know, John Fetterman, who's running for Senate in Pennsylvania, was at, uh, on the West Virginia border. And he's a very rural area doing a campaign event. And he looks around the crowd and he's like, not a single person here who cares about the filibuster. This whole crowd, this whole crowd wants to get rid of the filibuster. And he's now, you know, running on an anti-filibuster platform. I'm sure a lot of the other primary candidates in Pennsylvania will do the same thing. We're seeing Democratic candidates run against all the time. Like the, the one true thing that Joe Manchin said to reporters a while back was, if you want a bigger bill, if you want more progressive priorities, elect more progressive Democrats. Because I'm not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and he's right. 
he's right. We actually do have to elect more progressive Democrats. So you can either choose to not participate or not vote Democrat or not whatever, or you can go fight to go elect more progressive Democrats. That's it. That's that's sort of the choice that we face. And I think I'd rather do the latter. Um, okay. when we come back, I will talk to former uh, Biden COVID advisor Andy Slavitt about the Omicron variant. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. This week, a Biden administration official told Axios that when it comes to the Omicron variant spreading throughout the U.S., quote, everything points to a large wave. A large wave is coming. Here to talk about what we can do to prepare as individuals and as a country is President Biden's former senior advisor for COVID response, my former Obama colleague and now fellow podcast host of the excellent show In the Bubble, Andy Slavitt. Thanks for doing this, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. So last week I had a um, wonderful conversation with our uh, Surgeon General for another show I host called Offline, and we talked about uh, why it's important for our mental health to do less COVID doom scrolling. Uh, <laughs> so in that spirit, I want to try to stick to Omicron questions for you where the answers can give people an action to take or a behavior to change or, or something to advocate for. Because I see a lot of people just tweeting, this is going to be a horror show, and I, and I don't know that that's... Um, very productive at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, first off, it seems abundantly clear that every single person should get a booster who is 16 or older and six months past their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna or two months past their J&J shot. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's um, in the this is not as bad as it could have been category is the fact that boosters are highly effective uh, against Omicron. And so it's nice to go into a wave, having the science at least to solve it. We didn't last year. A year ago, we went to a wave. We didn't have the science to solve it. Now we do. So get boosted. Um, what about kids 
from 5 to 15 who are vaccinated but not eligible for a booster? What should they do? How should they act? Uh, they should act like kids. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is true that kids 5 to 15 um, aren't eligible for boosters yet. It's also true that they probably have stronger immune systems. You know, there, there is data in South Africa and the UK which shows this affecting younger kids um, uh, a bit more probably not with severity, um, so I wouldn't panic. But I, I would say that, um, you know, for the next period of time, and I think the period of time is actually likely to be potentially very brief because it's gonna be a very fast wave. I think it, I think extra caution with your kids or with anybody who doesn't have a booster is warranted. Uh, we were, we're seeing schools close. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in January, uh, we, we were back at that for a little while. But the thing I would want people to understand, John, is that um, we're not talking about something that's going to likely last months. We're talking about something that experts are predicting will peak in the middle of January and start to go down very quickly. So this is the one that keeps me up at night. My son, Charlie, 17 months old, uh, doesn't sound like he'll be eligible for a vaccine until February at the earliest. Um, it, and it seems like you said that the Omicron wave will be here in January. Like, should I take more precautions than we've already been taking with Delta? Um, like, and when would you start taking those precautions? Yeah, I'd be worried about, I'm worried about kids zero to five because there, there's a little bit of a perfect storm in that most of them have not socialized yet, the, the ones that haven't been at day school. So they don't have either prior immunity or uh, vaccination. And so they're susceptible to getting this. Now, where, where I would tell you and your wife and, and everybody else, the little kids not to panic, is very likely they'll get it and you wouldn't know it if you didn't test them, mm-hmm. um, if, if they did get it. Uh, but, you know, still none of us wants to, to our kids to be even a little bit sick. or have, uh, So, uh, you know, I think it is um, wise, particularly because we're talking a short period of time, particularly we're talking because he's preschool age, hang out with mom and dad, watch cartoons, um, probably don't do a ton of play dates um, d- during that period of time. Okay. Um, so same question I DM'd you about in July. It's hard to believe now it's already December. Those of us who got J&J and boosted with an mRNA, should we get one more booster? Because Michael Lynn, a scientist and doctor who I'm sure you know, um, he had this whole long thread uh, earlier this week saying that we should, that J&J plus an mRNA is is much less protection than three mRNAs. Yeah. So, so, so my son is my, my older son is still mad at me <laughs> for having gotten the J and J vaccine. He's like, dad, you think you would have known to tell me not to get that. And I'm sure you're mad at me too. Um, no, it's my fault. I, you know, well, every public well, health we, official said, take the first did. one you can get. And that's did. what I did. <laughs> we did. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Um, so look, <laughs> not to be, not to be flip about it, but J and J plus a boost is basically the equivalent of a boost. Um, the, the data on J&J, and by the way, on Sinopharm and on Sputnik um, is not good with, with Omicron. And, and that's something that um, I wouldn't even say we could have or should have anticipated. Um, this is, a, this is um, you, know, you know, in effect, I would advise people who've taken J&J to almost forget they got that shot uh, at this point in time, now that we have Omicron coming. And and like do a do over from your first booster, um, and and 
And that's just, that's just kind of the reality. It's a very imperfect way to look at it. Yeah. But we don't need, we don't need like, we don't need perfect ways to look at it. We just need something, as you said, that's actionable. And in my mind, um, I'd, I'd go beyond where you started. So I, I got my Moderna booster before it was authorized specifically as a booster. So I got the 100 MG Moderna, but I'm now booking myself. I just booked myself a Sunday appointment at CVS to get a, a 50 MG booster plus my J&J. I feel like that should be enough for me then. I think this whole show episode should really be about what's right for you, John. Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, no, there's a whole J&J yeah. hive here at Crooked Media and everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. No, it's funny though. Like I was texting with Sanjay Gupta this morning and literally... Um, I'm like, how worried are you? And all he wants to talk about, like, is his daughters and his family. It's like all of us, I know, um, have the same kind of reaction, no matter how kind of policy or global oriented we think we are. Like at the end of the day, we're like, yeah. And also, like my family, I've got this like crazy situation, and 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 everyone wants to know what what to do. And I think uh, it, it's very natural. I will say um, that it's part of the also part of what the challenge is is that um, everybody's acting based on their own risk profile. And, you know, you've got, you know, you've got 75 million people that are in a situation your son's in where they can't get boosted or vaccinated. And yeah. you've got hundreds, hundred million who probably could and aren't. Well, I want to get to sort of the, what the country should do and some policy solutions um, soon too. For the, I think it's what, 13, 14% of the country now that is fully boosted. What else should they be thinking about in terms of precautions over the next month? Yeah. And, and by the way, I have a feeling that the number is higher than what's being reported. You're exactly right. It's about 14 percent. Um, I talked to some people at the White House today um, who who believe that we actually have somewhat of a misreporting of numbers going on, that there's a lot of people who we think have one booster, have one shot, I should say. Mm-hmm. But what they really are, people who came in, didn't have a prior record and got boosted. So the good news, bad news is, you know, you've got a lot more people that are boosted than we think. You've also got a lot more people who've got nothing got it. who are in in those kinds of c- communities. Look, I think it's all it's all the same. I mean, we have um, look if you're in a position where you can afford rapid at home tests, then if you're having people over for the holidays, it's a good idea to have people take those tests. You, you know, my wife calls them a day pass. Uh, really, you know, you, someone comes home from college, someone comes home, uh, you know, you, you, you go to your parents, your grandparents. Uh, what even if you're boosted? good idea to, to, to take one of those tests before getting together. Um, if, again, if presuming you can afford one, presuming you can access one, I, I probably spend a $10 more on that and $10 less on my Christmas presents um, <laughs> just to make sure I can enjoy the holidays. And just about on, on the timing of these rapid tests, because I saw some this floating around too, like you see some invitations to holiday parties whenever and then someone says, okay, uh, get a rapid test or, or give us your negative COVID test one to two days before before the event. It does seem like from everything I'm reading that you should take your rapid test as soon as close to the event that you're going to as possible, right? Yeah, that's right. I would. And and uh and then it could then you can enjoy it and have a good time. Um and if if they don't do that and you choose to go anyway, then it's also not a bad idea to get one done afterwards because mm. uh you know, you don't know if right. you don't want to carry it from there. Will uh, K95 masks work as well against a variant this transmissible that's going to be all over the place? Are we still feeling good about masks? Well, we don't have any data yet, but it works better. Look, it's a a relative uh, layer, right? So uh, to my mind, small inconveniences, like why wouldn't you add the the K95 mask? Uh, I I do think that 
it's uh, that that there's going to be some effectiveness uh, for sure. And this thing is so contagious that without the mask, it's probably problematic. As you know, in LA now, masks are required indoors, mm-hmm. um, which is a good thing. Except, like, I don't know about you, but if I'm if I'm dining indoors, like like ninety seven percent of the time, I'm I'm like eating or drinking, and so is everybody else in the restaurant. So. You know, but might want to think about kind of you know leaning in towards more indoor dining if you can, right? Outdoor dining, I should say. So on the policy front, and getting back to the testing question, should the Biden administration make it even easier for people to get free tests as opposed to this policy they announced, where you have to get reimbursed through your insurer? What, what do you think about this whole situation? Well, it's, it's funny. I had a conversation over there this morning um, with an idea, um, which is that you could actually make the because they're in a bit of a bind right they don't yeah. have the money um yet from congress to buy you know they've got they've got some money but they don't have enough money to get everybody all the tests that they need the idea was to to to, to, to it was kind of a technical one but it's to try to basically make getting a, a rapid at home test work the same way it does when you go pick up a prescription at the pharmacy they can they can ping your insurance right when you go in to pick it up right so you never get so you don't get charged or you'll get charged the appropriate amount so Hopefully they're going to implement something like that. I've been calling on insurance companies, PBMs, uh, pharmacies to actually reduce the hassle and, and, and get this done. But this is one of those situations where in the short term, because it's happening so fast, the White House is going to need cooperation from the outside uh, to get it done for any practical purposes. If you really want to do something by the time, you know, Omicron's here, there's unfortunately not really the time uh, to, to, to do anything else. So, they can be criticized, but as you know, policies are perfect yeah. and you got to kind of do the best you can. Well, what else should the administration be doing in the next several weeks to minimize the damage here? What can they do? Well, I'd be talking a lot if I were there and I think if you were there uh, to the public um, about this uh, wave. Uh, and I know the people are fatigued and people are not listening and uh, and it feels futile, but I, I don't think you can quit uh, doing that. And I think uh, I would. Uh, so I think it, it starts with a, like a, a fair amount of uh, kind of continual calling people's attention to this. If you look at uh, around the world, we're probably doing less of that than than people around the world are. And then I think, you know, there's real justification for saying, I don't really care if you get vaccinated. What I do care about is if you're going to be around people who can't get vaccinated or boosted, I should say, like uh, in an office setting or a school setting, that you have to get, you have to assure everybody that you've been that that you're not going to spread COVID. And I think you know the fact that Republicans have made that controversial. Yeah, it's to, I think we should we should freaking ignore that because many of them are behaving so badly, it's so absurdly that for all of the people that are going to say you're stepping on my freedom. Yeah, a whole bunch of other people that are saying, I'm doing everything right, and you're letting these people get away with um, essentially uh, making my workplace unsafe, making my restaurant unsafe, making my school unsafe. Yeah. Will um, will Pfizer's antiviral pill that reduces hospitalizations by, I think, 89% be ready to help people through this Omicron surge, or is that too no. far away? No, it won't. Um, it's, just per- it's the right question. It's a great question. It is. It is probably... You know, when I, we we interviewed for for in the bubble, we interviewed twelve scientists, and we asked them four questions. One of them, what's going to be the scientific breakthrough of twenty twenty two? And um, the majority of them said 
that this Pfizer pill that you're referring to, and it's really a series of pills that you've, that if you take it within three to five days of, of sickness, uh, of, 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 be, of being aware of, with COVID, you're going to, uh, it's going to do a dramatic job. Uh, 90% um, protect you. Uh, that's, that's really great news. Now, this, it doesn't scale, the production, productivity doesn't scale really well. So it's going to be September, even in September, we're only going to have in the single millions or even, you know, 10 million doses here in the U.S. And look, they're, do, they're doing something at Pfizer that is admirable, but we should understand that it has a ramification on us, which is that they're distributing it much more equitably throughout the world yeah. than they did the vaccines. And, you know, they, the, they got a lot of criticism for um, favoring wealthy nations when it came to uh, vaccines. That's, that's being treated differently with these therapeutics, but it does mean there's going to be a lot less to go around in the U.S. for quite a while. We know that variants like Omicron will keep coming, potentially, until the whole world is vaccinated. How do we do that? What are, what are the obstacles right now, both from a supply standpoint, uh, distribution, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So <laughs> the problem just got a lot harder because the definition of vaccinated, right, just changed right out from under us, right? Because it used to be two and now it's three. So yeah, I would say we vaccinated, uh, you know, eight and a half million, eight and a half billion people around the globe, which is extraordinary. Mm. And, and it's something we got to be incredibly proud of. And the U.S. has donated uh, more vaccines around the world for free than, than anybody. So we should feel good about that. But unfortunately, um, the, pro- the, the, the hurdle is much higher. Uh, here, I'll tell you what the problem isn't, John. The problem isn't, do we have enough vaccines? The problem isn't, do we have enough money? The World Bank has, has made sure we do. The problem is that there are many countries that, um, that, that, that going from vaccine to arms, the same problem that we had in the, here a year ago is the real challenge. Uh, and in Africa, you know, you may have heard that in South Africa, they actually told Pfizer to stop sending vaccines because their vaccines were spoiling. So getting out to remote parts of the country, getting people to trust that they should put something in their arms that maybe the first time they're hearing of and getting them to trust an establishment that basically screwed them over on HIV AIDS for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, right. It's a, it, those, those are real challenges. And, uh, and it's, so there, this last mile problem in Africa is real. Uh, as in remote parts of the world. And so we need very much a all hands on deck effort. If, if you know, if I, if I think about, you know, your pod save the world show, um, I, I think about the, the context that we don't have the same type of global leadership that we once had, you know, the G20 as a body, right. Doesn't act um, uh, in uniform. The, 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 the fighting between China and the U S and all these, all those things hurt, our ability to coordinate a massive global effort that we could have done 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, here's where I, I, I can't figure out, like there's the, there's the supply issue. There's a distribution issue, right? Like every country should be more generous, rich countries, especially obviously. Um, but th- we have vaccine hesitancy here in the United States that we haven't been able to solve uh, however many years into this. Um, they have other countries have similar vaccine hesitancy that they haven't been able to solve as well all over the world. Like, what is the plan for ending this pandemic that also recognizes the reality of vaccine hesitancy, not just in the United States, but all over the world? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting. And it's obviously something that we spend a lot of time on trying to figure out in the White House 
And, you know, I, I've come to believe that in, in, the, in the U.S., which and I, and I think it differs a little bit around the world, but just to start with the U.S., 20% of the public is just pretty strongly anti-science. And, and, and this has preceded uh, the pandemic. This isn't about, hey, can you find a more clever way to communicate why people should take a vaccine? This is some pretty embedded stuff. Um, and I know you've done you've done deep research um, in, in your the wilderness uh, podcast specifically about kind of people's attitudes and how far apart people are. This is some of that same stuff. I think yeah. that that it's the same stuff that Trump didn't create, but he wrote. And uh, and and so we've got this strong anti institutional bent. Uh, people who are the believe in conspiracy theories, they want to believe the things that they read that to cause skepticism and doubt on on government and pharmaceutical industries, all places that have their own vulnerabilities. And so, you know, we really, unfortunately, like in most things in life, if you get 75%, right, you win, right? If, if you'd gotten 75% for any political candidates you work with, you'd say, that's pretty damn good. Unfortunately here, um, this virus isn't as forgiving. So I, I didn't answer your question about end game because I think, we have to accept that reality and the end game um, has to actually work around it. And that means that we're going to have to understand that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get their immunity from prior infection. Um, and there, there's really no other way. And that's imperfect and more of them will die. And it's not, it's not necessarily the most rational decision. Um, but I think the, the object is pretty immovable. Yeah. I mean, look, it always sort of bothered me that um, some of the public health experts who weren't so hot on boosters before Omicron would say things like, well, you know, we're, 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 we're focused on boosters, but the Biden administration has just given up on the unvaccinated. And I'm like, given up on the unvaccinated, like we put in place mandates that everywhere they could basically, except for airplanes, which they could do. Um, but the employer one is now in court. We're at the mercy of our judicial system. So like, I don't know what else the Biden administration or all of us can be doing about the um, vaccine hesitant in this country, let alone other countries. And so then I wonder, like, do you think that they're so we're not in a situation again where we have another variant like Omicron that comes uh, in another six months from now and we think everything's fine? Like, are there are scientists looking into creating vaccines or creating certain boosters that would help against any kind of variant? Like, yeah. is that is that part of it? I'm just thinking of other ways that we can get out of this thing. Yeah. Well, let me talk for a second about the politics and then about the science. You know, it probably doesn't help that you got guys like Eric Schmidt in Missouri who are saying, like, we shouldn't even report data any longer on when there are cases in that ranks. That, that like the very idea of case surveillance is 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 a bad thing. Right. It doesn't help that there's been a hundred laws, local laws that have been stricken from the books that that basically make public health not an option in many, many states. So like all this criticism for Joe Biden, he could take it fine, criticize Joe Biden all you want. But like where the F is the criticism for like Ted Cruz saying, well, you know, we're going to stop the government from going forward if we have public health laws. Where's the where's the criticism for um, all people who are like literally they won't lift a finger to fight the pandemic, but they will go to great lengths to fight the people fighting the pandemic. So I, I think that the, um, you know, the fact that Biden finds himself on his heels on this is understandable because he's the president and he's accountable. Mm. But uh, but I, I think there's so many people are getting a free pass or being irresponsible. In, in terms of the science side, I think the answer is yes. Um, 
and, and I, in, a, in a couple of ways. One is like if they create an internasal vaccine, um, you know, that, that becomes, uh, a, I think actually a far, there, there, are, there are innovations that I think people can use more. I think we also probably, if someone's like dead set against getting vaccinated, you probably have to talk to them about the array of tools that they can be using, like, um, like, like antivirals, like rapid at-home tests, and, uh, and other types of things. I do think we make a mistake and maybe made a mistake by talking about, including me, by the way, by talking about the vaccine as if it was what was going to end the pandemic. Mm. Instead of the, now we, we all know the right way to talk about it. This is a very, very powerful tool to help you and your family and your community, but it's not the end all be all. And so people who are anti-vaccinated, anti-vaccine, some of them I think feel very justified in saying, see, I don't need this thing because they they told us it was the greatest thing in the world and it's really not. And and so I think we just have got, got to take it in a more um, sensible fashion, uh, but also understand that the, the virus, this is a very fit virus. If you talk to these evolutionary biologists, it's good. People aren't going to get vaccinated or boosted. They're going to get COVID. So a lot of them will die. A lot of them will get in the hospital, but a lot of them won't. And they don't, and if they don't feel scared about it, there's nothing you can do, but that, that, but, but ultimately that's going to create a layer of protection in those communities. Uh, that's equivalent to the layer of protection for vaccines are eventually. And, and then, you know, through that process, um, you end up with a much more livable, less spreadable uh, disease, we hope. Okay. Um, is there anything else that I, I forgot to ask you that people should know information they should be armed with as they go into the holiday season? Yeah. So, so I'd say just a couple of things. One is um, no one wants to go back and, and, and deal with things that are closed and, and, and whatnot, but I think it's going to be short. I think it'll be short-lived, so I, I hope people feel encouraged that, that they can get through that. And just just offer that as a bit of encouragement. Secondly, I think Congress can act. Um, I'd like to get some of the pressure off of just the White House. Hmm. You know, the, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have more money for, for for global vaccinations. It wouldn't hurt to have more money for um, so we can make uh, stat rapid at-home tests ubiquitous, like your question asked. And so I think if we're going to advocate or put pressure somewhere. Uh, I think that's not a bad place to do it. And finally, I, I just say, look, we have the tools. We all have the tools to get through even these waves. We're not in 2020 anymore. And so the panic that we kind of all feel when we hear about a new wave um, is really this sort of flashback yeah. and PTSD. PTSD, it is. Exactly. Yeah. And so some of this is take the rational questions you're asking. Uh, there, are, there are now tools and options for almost all of them. Are, are that that are far better than that we were before, and then just be very very conscious of the fact that some nurse or doctor in a hospital is going to go through this crush in the next four to six weeks, and if we can lighten the load so they can get through that, um, we're going to be in far far better shape. Andy Slavitt, uh, thank you so much for joining. Everyone, go check out In the Bubble. It's a fantastic podcast where you can get all kinds of um, really helpful information about this pandemic and living through it. So uh, appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time, Andy. Appreciate you, John. Thanks. Thanks. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. All right, before we sign off for the year, we're going to do something fairly embarrassing that will only fuel the problems we complain about and contribute to our own self-loathing. We're going to talk about Politico Playbook. (laughs) (laughs) I had to at least admit it, Dan. Yeah, no, it's good. Look what we're doing. Tuesday's headline was, quote, what the left doesn't get about the media. And here's what Ryan Lizza and Rachel Bade wrote, quote, One of the most consistent criticisms of the political press from the left these days is that it treats politics and policy as normal when the United States is facing an unprecedented crisis of democracy. And here's their answer as to why they do that. Quote, for better or worse, campaign coverage emphasizes what candidates are doing and saying. Washington policy and politics coverage emphasizes what the president and other leaders are trying to move through Congress. If Democratic candidates aren't talking about America's anti-democratic movement, and if President Joe Biden, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer aren't doing it every day in Washington, then the coverage will reflect that. That is not a defense of the political media ecosystem, but just a description of it. What do you think about that argument? I think it is both an accurate description and a searing fucking indictment of political media in this country. Say more. (laughs) (laughs) an indictment in what way the idea that all we do is just tell people the information and let them make decisions is not how media works right you are choosing you like the media is not neutral is not unbiased they pick the things that they where they put their their thumb on the scale certainly and this i don't this is not a critique i understand it things that are good for business for them get a lot of attention. The stories that get clicks, stories that get ratings. Do you think back in 2014, CNN had a passionate interest in the Malaysian airliner out of journalistic integrity? No. People read watched that story. Do you think CNN or MSNBC or others showed empty podiums uh, before Trump rallies in 2015, 2016 because they thought that was fucking newsworthy? No, because it was good for them. They do that. They're, and you know what? They're a business with payroll and investors and all the above. And they look Politico was right that not enough Democrats understand the media is a business and they make decisions on their business interest. They also put their thumb on the scale for things that they decide they want to care about. Transparency and access. Do you think they write a gazillion stories about Joe Biden's uh, frequency of press conferences because they think that's 
journalistically interesting? No. They decided a long time ago, and I don't begrudge them this either, that they have power and they're going to use that power to fight for access and transparency. And it is why they, and I think this was probably their right decision as much as sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable, were so aggressive about some of the early investigations of leaks and whistleblowers that roped in journalists in the early parts of the Obama administration. They kicked Obama's ass for that, and that is their right. And you know what? Frankly, they should do that. But democracy is not a tax bill or a health care bill. It is what allows them to do their fucking jobs. You don't yeah, have it to- involves them. They like stories about themselves a lot. They write a lot of stories about themselves. This is a story about them. Yeah. Two. All of us, but them too. Do you know who the first people the authoritarians come for when they take power? The yeah. press. They take over the TV station. Look at what's happening in Hungary, right? Ben wrote about this in his book. They talk about Pot Save the World all the time. Authoritarians that govern Hungary, what do they do? Take care of all the media. What is happening in Russia? And the idea that you're just going to cover it as if it was a dispute over economic policy or political strategy is an insane life choice. And it is one where you were so beltway, both sides pickled in your fucking brain that you can't make decisions that are about what's good for, not only just good for the country, but good for yourself. Now, reporters will say, because I've seen them say this, like Democrats want us to be on their team. We are not on their team. Uh, That's not our job. And to which I say like, First of all, I never thought you were supposed to be on our team. I, w- I, <laughs> I realize there are some Democrats. I wouldn't I would pick you for con- any. <laughs> I would never confuse you for a teammate nor want you as a teammate. <laughs> that would be a really bad team that I'm putting together because they're not doing a great job for us right now. <laughs> yes, in fact, one of the requirements of going to journalism is being the last person picked on every team in elementary school. That's how you end up with it. <laughs> oh, man. This is why they don't like us. Yeah. Um, okay. But look, I, I, so I, I don't expect them to be on our team. I really don't. I don't expect you to have my position on healthcare or taxes or climate or any of it, even though you should, <laughs> at least especially on some of those things. Um, but you're right. Like, even from a self-interested standpoint, you would think that the media would have an interest in protecting democracy uh, and writing about it. I think the question is, and a fair question is, what would it look like for the political press to give the anti-democracy movement the coverage it deserves? Is it about the number of stories? Is it about the tone of the coverage? Because the other argument you get from them is, okay, if suddenly we were just rabidly anti-Trump and anti-Republican party because they've become an anti-democracy party, wouldn't that just fuel the polarization that already exists in the country? And wouldn't that not really persuade anyone else because now they just think we're in in bed with the liberals and, and all the accusations of liberal bias are correct? So what is the point of doing that? Well, guess what? That already happened. That happened a long time ago. It happened because you let the Republicans kick the shit out of you for years and tried to appease them, not recognizing that those attacks were in bad faith. You did that while Fox, whose entire creation was about telling Republicans that the rest of the press was full of shit and shouldn't be listened to. And what did you do then? You kept passing hors d'oeuvres with Brett Barrett cocktail parties, right? Like that has happened. You have lost that war. The war is over. You have lost it. It is done. So you can either, you can stop trying to appease people who are not listening to you and just cover things in the right way. And I think- I don't, the idea of like number of stories is like a fake thing in the age of the internet. It's not like you, there are 12 yeah, available yeah. stories for the New York Times per day and how much of our quota are we going to use on democracy? What I think the key here is, and it like I think the one reasonable request to ask is you stop covering 
voter suppression, election subversion, insurrections, trying to restrict the, you know, trying to anti-majoritarian tasks. Stop trying covering that as a political strategy. Cover yeah. it as an actual threat to democracy, like you would cover in some sort of threat from abroad to democracy, right? Yeah. How, how would you cover it? Take Donald Trump's name off of it. Take the Republican Party's name off of it. How would you cover it in Turkey or China or Saudi Arabia or somewhere else? Well, I guess maybe China is a bad example because they would censor themselves in order to stay in the market, but the same here and right. there. But look, and I do think one of the big problems whenever we talk about the media is, you know, we try, we, there's a broad definition of media that sort of covers everyone. And that's, that's not what we're talking about here because I do think, I, I think especially over the last several years since during the Trump administration, there are plenty of reporters. Um, you see them at the Washington Post, CNN, places like that, who actually are taking this threat seriously. Yeah. And I have noticed a change in the tone of coverage. The challenge is it is not permeated through the entire media system and editors, headline writers, um, Politico, <laughs> at least a lot of folks at Politico. Like there are still large media organizations where this is the exception rather than the rule. Um, and I think that's the that's sort of the larger problem. It has not become sort of it, it has not been a systemic change in journalism yet. You know, and it's not even it's like there are some very good journalists at Politico, who write really good things, but the general roots of Politico is that they build themselves when they created the organization, the news organization, as the ESPN for politics, and they have never lost that view yeah. of how you think about it. And politics is not sport; people's lives and livelihoods are at risk, and how these decisions are made. And even you know, you can say we can point to a bunch of like bad stuff at CNN, and you point at people like Jake Tapper or Brianna Keeler, who have been very who have called this stuff out, who have called out Fox for their disinformation yeah. and really like Brian Stelter's done it. You know, and yep. you could, you'd, in every organization, you can find people who are doing the right things and find people who are doing the wrong thing. I do want to give, there are two points I think we should make that are quasi in defense of the press here. One is playbook is right. That if Democrats really think this is the gonna, threat. I'm going to cut that one. I'm just going to cut that one sentence and just have it haunt you forever. It's going to be Dan <laughs> Pfeiffer. Playbook is right. Yeah, that's, you know what? Fine. <laughs> Elijah's going to cut it and just run. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward. Ahead. I look forward to doing campaign experts react with new senior producer, Yale Freed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, if Democrats really think it is this true threat. We got to say it. And I think the one, the biggest misunderstanding that Democrats have about the press throughout the entire Trump era is it is not the press's job to persuade voters for us. Yes. If we if we think Donald Trump's a criminal, the New York Times is not going to convince them of that. They may write a story, but they may uncover information which we can use to make things, but we have to make that case. And this idea that we're going to talk about kitchen table issues and the New York Times and Politico and everyone else is going to inform the electorate about the threat to democracy. That is a stupid strategy and it misunderstands their role and our role. And this goes back to what we were talking about in the earlier segment. Like I do think as we head into 2022, Democrats have to sort of separate whatever Manchin and Cinema are going to do on voting rights legislation, talking about the anti-democratic movement in this country and how to save democracy and why it's so important to save democracy needs to be a priority for every single Democrat from Joe Biden on down to local officials. And everyone needs to start talking about it. And everyone needs to start calling out the Republican bullshit. And everyone needs to make it a messaging priority because you're right, we cannot count on the media to do this. 
We know that. We're just we're going to keep banging our heads against the wall on this. But we do have a megaphone, all of us in, in on the progressive side of the aisle and the Democratic side of the aisle here. And Democratic leaders should use that megaphone because that's going to be more effective than complaining about how the media is not using the megaphone. Yeah. And with that, we will close on 2021 for now. For, what uh, a for our regular episode. <laughs> Let's end the year on a high note. <laughs> well, look, that's why we got. We're going to record an episode tomorrow. That's all of our fun. Uh, we got some mailbag questions. We're going to do. We got the pundies, uh, which are always fun. We got our New Year's resolutions. So that'll be the uplifting episode you all get before the end of the year. Until then, um, thank you to Andy Slavitt for joining us today. Uh, everyone, have a great weekend. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.